Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet, Channel 902. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Jalani Tulo, Tabisolo Hogo and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Cameroon's opposition rejects ruling party's attempt to organize early elections. UN confirms fresh allegations of rape against its peacekeepers in the DRC. And the South African Parliament to debate President Zuma's impeachment motion. In economics, South Africa's motorists brace themselves for massive fuel price hike. And in sports news, Kenya said to miss Another world anti-doping agency deadline. But first up the news with Jalani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. South Africa's opposition, the Democratic Alliance, wants National Assembly Speaker Balek Ambete to recuse herself from presiding over the debate of a motion to remove President Jacob Zuma from office. The DA brought the motion in terms of Section 89 of the Constitution. This comes after the Constitutional Court found that the President's failure to comply with the Public Protector's remedial action was inconsistent with his constitutional obligation. The Court also found that the National Assembly failed to hold the President to account. DA Chief Whip John Stiganazen. Well, I think that it would be completely inappropriate for Speaker Mbete to take the chair during this motion on the removal of the President, um, mainly because she was a first respondent to the matter. So she is part of the uh, judgment, and many of the issues that are raised in the judgment itself are a reflection of her uh, poor stewardship and inability to ensure that Parliament was performing its role. So I think that it would be uh, completely wrong of her, and I think indeed a conflict of interest. However, ANC Coco spokesperson Moloto Motapo disagrees with Stianazen's call for Mbete to recuse herself. Because as we have said, the judgment is the authoritative guide to how Parliament should do its work in the future. There's absolutely nothing in that particular judgment that holds the presiding officers personally uh, responsible for anything. The orders that have been passed by the judgment and that needs to be implemented are institutional and uh, the presiding officers have indicated that they have got all the uh, intention and commitment to make sure that those uh, orders are implemented. Cameroon opposition is continuing protests against efforts by the ruling party to organize early elections. The opposition says Paul Bia is angling to be is angling to be president for life after 34 years in office. Several protesters have been wounded or arrested since demonstrations started last week Tuesday. Ka Wala, opposition party leader of the Cameroon People's Party CPP, says they were dressed in black as a symbol of sadness over President Bia's long stay in power and persistent brutality on voices opposing his attempt to be president for life. The police, as you see, they have blocked us, they have shoved us, they will not allow us to talk, they will not allow us to do our job. 
as the political leaders of this country. They have stepped on the rights of citizens. Zimbabwe's ZANU-PF Party National Commissioner has issued a strong warning against those with ambitions to succeed President Robert Mugabe. Xavier Kasukwere says discussing the issue before the end of his term was like committing treason. He added that anyone who discussed the issue prematurely risked being expelled from the ruling party. This came as the battle to succeed Mugabe intensified within ZANU-PF. Vice President Emerson Mnangagwa Pelezeka Mpoko and First Lady Grace Mugabe were among the possible names in the looming battle to take over from Mugabe. And finally, thousands of people have fled fighting in Congo's capital, Brazzaville. The government has planned, has blamed heavy clashes in southern opposition bastions on the rebel group known as the Ninjas. Streams of people panicked by gunfire Rather, panicked by gunfire are fleeing districts loyal to the opposition, which is contesting President Denis Sasungwesu's re-election. In a televised statement, government spokesperson Terry Mungala blame, blamed the fighting on disbanded Ninjansi Lulu fighters, saying they attacked an army position as well as four police stations. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Africa, rise and shine. Thank you, Jalani. It's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 902. Cameroon's opposition has defied police and continued protests against efforts by the ruling party to organize early elections. The opposition says President Paul Bia wants to extend his 34-year grip on power. Several protesters have been wounded or arrested since demonstrations started last week. Since Sunday, protesters dressed in black have been clashing with the police. Channel Africa's Muki Kinzaka reports from Yaoundé. Kawala, opposition party leader of the Cameroon People's Party, the CPP, says they were dressed in black as a symbol of sadness over President Bia's long stay in power and persistent brutality on voices opposing his attempt to be president for life. She says dozens of protesters were arrested or wounded by heavily armed police in several towns including Cameroon's capital Yaoundé and the economic city Douala during the protest that began last Tuesday. The police, as you see, they have blocked us, they have shoved us, they will not allow us to talk, they will not allow us to do our job as the political leaders of this country. They have stepped on the rights of citizens. Kawala, who is member of a coalition of four opposition political parties, says they will continue the demonstrations until Cameroon's president, Paul Bia, says no to calls by his ruling party on him to change the constitution and organize early elections. Cameroon government spokesperson Isa Chiruma Bakari says the protests are illegal and will not be allowed to take place. When you claim to be a politician, 
you ought to know the law. The fact that you are a politician does not allow you to take the law into your own hand. Those who had to face the toughness of the police and gendarmerie in charge of public security, they knew it by violating the law, they knew 100% what would happen next. When you violate the law in such a circumstances, the consequences are very well known. What they wanted to have, what they wanted to receive, they had, they, they had it. The world all over has spoken about them. The sub-DO, gendarme and police, they did their job. This indeed contributes to tarnish the image. So the politicians who have decided to undertake such action, they ought to have reflected on it, defer the movement until the conditions are met to undertake such a movement. Bia revised the constitution in 2008 to remove presidential term limits. His supporters have been calling on him to change the constitution and organize early elections. His current mandate ends in 2018. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé. The UN has confirmed fresh allegations of rape against its peacekeepers in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The organization has been in the spotlight for months following allegations of sexual abuse by its blue helmets, mainly in the Central African Republic, that now totals more than 100. Tanzanian troops that are put on MINUSCO's Force Intervention Brigade alongside the SANDF and Malawian troops are thus far the only contingent to be implicated in the sexual abuse claims in the DRC. Sharon Bryce-Peace has more. It's a region left vulnerable after decades of conflict and those sent to keep communities safe, allegedly abusing the responsibility entrusted them. Stefan Dujeric is the Secretary General spokesperson. The UN mission uh, there announced that it had received allegations of sexual exploitation and abuse by members of the Tanzanian contingent of the mission's Force Intervention Brigade in Mavivi village in the eastern part of the country. According to preliminary information, there are 11 allegations of sexual exploitation and abuse against the Tanzanian contingent in the area. All of them involve paternity claims. We pressed the spokesperson on whether the 11 paternity claims were just the tip of the iceberg, similar to the spiraling allegations in the Central African Republic. You're asking me to predict something I can't predict. Uh, I don't know if it's the beginning of something, uh, of something else. What we do know is that these specific allegations, currently the only contingent being looked at, is the Tanzanian contingent. Obviously, whether it's the CAR, or the Central African Republic, or the Democratic Republic of the Congo, we would urge those who have information to come forward, and we want to make sure that the communities and those members in the communities who may have been abused feel free, safe enough uh, to come forward. The implicated soldiers have been detained at base, awaiting further investigation, while all Tanzanian troops have been confined to base, while a top UN official on sexual abuse is expected in the region soon. The Secretary General's Special Coordinator for Improving the UN's Response to Sexual Exploitation and Abuse, Jane Holut, will travel to the Central African Republic and the Democratic Republic of the Congo in the next few days. This is her first field visit to peacekeeping operations since she took up her post on March 1st. 
It's unclear when these alleged rapes took place in the DRC and given the paternity claims, the UN is trying to verify the ages of the children born to the alleged victims. Troop contributing countries, i.e. Tanzania in this instance, would be responsible for investigating and prosecuting the alleged perpetrators, failing which the UN would step in. Joint investigations between the Office of Internal Oversight and concerned troop contributing countries are expected to be launched in the Central African Republic shortly. I'm Sherwin Bricepies in New York. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605 605- Four seven one seven double one. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Channel Africa is turning fifty this year, and to celebrate this milestone, Channel Africa invites you, our listeners, to send us anniversary messages. It's simple. Just call us on this number, plus 2783-913-3000, and follow the prompts to leave a short message. We would love to hear from you, and we are looking forward to hear your well wishes. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.13 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa's National Assembly will today debate the DA's motion calling for the removal of President Jacob Zuma from office. The DA also wants the National Assembly Speaker, Balekambete, to recuse herself when the motion is debated. But the ruling ANC says it won't happen. The motion comes after a landmark constitutional court judgment against the president. The constitutional court found that President Zuma failed to uphold and protect the constitution when he failed to comply with the remedial action recommended by another constitutionally recognized office, the public protector. Our parliamentary correspondent, Mercedes Percent, tells us more. President Jacob Zuma was elected president of the country for a second time at the first sitting of the National Assembly after the May 2014 elections. He automatically lost his seat as ANC MP after his election. On that day, he was nominated by ANC MP Story Murutwa. On behalf of the African National Congress and millions of South Africans, (laughs) nominate... Honorable Jacob Gedeshekisa Zuma to the position of the President of the Republic of South Africa in the fifth term of this democratic government. There were no further nominations on the day of his election as President. Chief Justice Mokweng Mokweng was presiding over the election of the President. At this stage we have one duly seconded nomination for the position of President of the Republic of South Africa. Are there other nominations? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it, it looks like Honorable Malema is, uh, is signaling his availability. 
<laughs> the nomination is in order and in terms of item 5 of part A of schedule 3 of the constitution I accordingly declare the honorable Jacob Gedeseki Sazuma duly elected president of the Republic of South Africa and I have the honor of congratulating you on your election as president. Congratulations, Mr. President. And because there were no other nominations, President Zuma was not elected through a secret ballot, and therefore his election went unopposed. In essence, all MPs in the National Assembly across the political spectrum endorsed President Zuma as their president and as the president for the rest of the country. The president is now facing removal from office. This comes after the DA submitted a motion to invoke Section 89 of the Constitution, which refers to removal of president. In terms of Section 89, a president can be removed for serious violation of the law or constitution, serious misconduct, or inability to perform functions of office. And if a president is successfully removed due to serious misconduct or for violating the law or constitution, he or she may lose all benefits and may not serve in any public office. But before this can happen, two-thirds of the National Assembly MPs should vote in favor of the motion to remove him from office. It would require about 266 of the 400 MPs to vote in favor of his removal. Today will not be the first time that the DA invoked Section 89 of the Constitution to remove the president. Last year, the DA brought a similar motion. It was on the basis that the president allegedly violated the law after government ignored a court order to arrest Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir last year. DA Chief Whip John Steenhazen believes that this afternoon's motion is different and more significant, saying there is concrete evidence from a court of law about the president's conduct. He describes the upcoming debate as a watershed moment. Chiefly because for the very first time since the 1994 election, we have the highest court in the land, the Constitutional Court, that has now found that the president conclusively violated uh, the Constitution violated his oath of office and did not behave in a lawful manner. And that is a very clear trigger of Section 89 of the Constitution. But that is not all that the DA wants. Stian Hazen says National Assembly Speaker Balekambete should recuse herself from presiding over the proceedings when the motion is debated. He says Mbete is conflicted and the DA will ask her to step aside. Well, I think that it would be completely inappropriate for Speaker Mbete to take the chair during this uh, motion on the removal of the president, uh, mainly because she was a first respondent to the matter. So she is part of the uh, judgment and many of the uh, issues that are raised in the judgment itself are a reflection of her uh, poor stewardship and inability to ensure that Parliament was performing its role. So I think that it would be uh, completely wrong of her and I think indeed a conflict of interest. But ANC Coca spokesperson Moloto Mutapo disagrees with Stianazen's reasons for Mbete to recuse herself. There's absolutely nothing in that particular judgment that holds the presiding officers personally responsible for anything. The orders that have been passed by the judgment and that needs to be implemented are institutional and uh, the presiding officers have indicated that they have got all the uh, intention and commitment to 
make sure that such uh, those uh, orders are implemented and we support them in that regard. Uh, we are expecting them to preside over this uh, important uh, motion tomorrow uh, and uh, we believe that uh, they will do so uh, with excellence. The EFF, which took its payback, the money battle directly to the Constitutional Court in August last year, says today's debate is more critical than ever before. EFF spokesperson Mbuise Nindlozi. It's very crucial. There is no other time when it has been more important than now because the Constitutional Court declared that President Zuma violated the Constitution and to that extent uh, he must be removed and the perfect body to do so is Parliament. You must exhaust that avenue uh, if there is to be something beyond Parliament that can be done. The debate is expected to take place later this afternoon. Leaders of most opposition parties are expected to meet this morning ahead of the debate. Meanwhile, the ANC caucus is also meeting ahead of the crucial debate. And that report by Mercedes Besant. Now let's go back in time to today in the year 1999. South Africa's President Nelson Mandela persuades Libya to hand over two suspects accused of placing a bomb on the Panam Flight 103, which exploded over Lockerbie and Scotland in 1988, killing altogether 270 people, crew, passengers and residents of the town. That was Today in History on this day, Tuesday, April the 5th, the 96th day of the year 2016, with 270 deaths days left in the year or how quickly it goes by. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma's nephew, Kulubuse Zuma, says there's nothing illegal he committed in facilitating investment of funds to an offshore account. Zuma is among those named in millions of confidential documents that have been leaked from one of the world's most secretive law firms, Mossack Fonseca, exposing how the rich and powerful have hidden their money. The documents reveal links to 72 current or former heads of state and accuse some of them of having vested interest in their own banks and looting their own countries. Tsepoeganeng has more. According to the unprecedented cache of papers dubbed the Panama Papers, dictators, former and serving heads of state, celebrities, sport personalities and business executives have been accused of laundering money, avoiding sanctions and investing millions in tax havens. President Jacob Zuma's nephew, Kulubuse Zuma, is amongst those named in a historic league of documents. Zuma is named in the league as being authorized to represent Capricat Limited, one of the two offshore companies that controversially acquired orphids in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Zuma has admitted that he represented Capricard, which is registered in the British Virgin Isles, to conclude the oil deal estimated at about 100 billion rand in 2010. However, his spokesperson, Vuyom Kize, has denied any wrongdoing on the part of Kulubuse, questioning the motives of those linking him to the so-called Panama Papers revelations on alleged secretive offshore investments by the world's prominent personalities.
Mr. Zuma has confirmed repeatedly over the past six years that indeed he did represent couple cards in that transaction with the DRC government back in 2010. And uh, it's always been known that uh, Capricard is indeed registered in an offshore tax haven uh, of uh, the British Virgin Islands. The other thing that we need to note is that the practice of registering companies in offshore tax havens, that's an established business practice and uh, various companies, some of which are listed in in the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, Thousands of uh, South African business people have registered companies in these tax uh, havens. So why the fixation on Kulubuse uh, Zuma and his uh, well-known connection or link to such a company? Only those behind sensationalizing the reports really can explain. British charity group Oxfam says the revelations of the leaked documents heralds another chapter in the fight against the sketch of illicit flow of capital. Oxfam's head of policy and campaigns, Max Lawson, has described the leak of Panama Papers as a defining moment for the shake-up of the global governance system. I think the Panama leaks revelations are only just beginning to make themselves felt, just as we saw with WikiLeaks and many others. It's going to shake up all sorts of different aspects of global politics. But one thing's for sure, the world will never be the same after these revelations. When we see the sheer scale of wealth and fortunes being hidden by political leaders, by celebrities, by rich individuals who think that they can play by a different set of rules to ordinary people. And that's just not acceptable. We're not saying that rich people should pay 100% tax. We're not, showing, we're not saying they shouldn't be rich. We're just saying that they should pay their fair share like everybody else. So I think this will put a lot of pressure, and yes, it will shake things up enormously. Oxfam has used this opportunity to repeat its call for the reform of the global tax system to prevent the rich and multinationals from taking their profits to tax havens. According to Oxfam, Africa alone loses billions of U.S. dollars a year to tax evasion by multinational companies and wealthy investors. Oxfam's makes law senses the leaks of the Panama Papers will strengthen their call for the clampdown on tax dodging by corporations and rich individuals. One estimate is that Africa loses $15 billion a year in tax revenue of rich individuals hiding their money offshore in these treasure islands overseas. We calculated as Oxfam that that money would be enough to put every child in Africa into school or would be enough money to save the lives of 4 million children by paying for medicines and health clinics. That's how much money is being stolen every year and hidden away. So this is a scandal of global proportions but it hurts Africa really specifically. Meanwhile, in another shock, South African connection to the Panama Papers leaks, it has been revealed that Fidentia's convicted accountant Graham Murdoch paid Panama-based law firm Mossack Fosenka about 59,000 US in 2005 and a million rent in 2016 to create two sets of offshore companies. The Fidentia scandal saw its mastermind J. Arthur Brown lavishly spending the savings of 47,000 widows and orphans embezzling over 500 million rent 
of their money. Brown was eventually sentenced to 15 years in jail in December 2014. Tsepo in Pretoria. The United Nations Refugee Agency says the lack of safeguards regarding the relocation of migrants and refugees from Europe to Turkey under a new deal is a cause of concern. The much agreement between the EU and Turkey is an attempt to stem the numbers of refugees and migrants landing on Europe's shores. Close to 200 people who had made it to the Greek islands of Lesbos and Chios were taken to the Turkish port of Dikili earlier this week. More from Ariane Ramari, spokesperson at UNHCR. Well, UNHCR is not a party to this agreement and we're not involved in either sending back uh, people from Greece or in their reception at the Turkish end. So we can't confirm at this point their arrival or, or what conditions that they're being kept in. What's happening on the ground in Greece and these islands? What's the mood like? We have had reports in recent days that uh, people are very, very confused. The centres where the people who are subject to the agreement, which began earlier last week, are very, very confused about their position and what will happen to them. They're staying in places which are overcrowded in several areas, uh, which are beyond capacity at the moment. And people are quite frustrated and confused about what's in store for them next. UNHCR has called for safeguards to be put in place before the returns start. Can you elaborate a bit on that? That's right. That's one of been our chief concerns about the implementation of this agreement is the lack of safeguards in, in Greece and, and as well as in Turkey. The Greek asylum system has been very stretched and the agreement itself refers to certain safeguards in place, including, for example, that people who are in need of international protection would have a chance to claim asylum in Greece. They'd also have a chance to challenge, uh, to put forward any reasons why they think they might be at risk of return to Turkey and to challenge their detention and in case they're being returned. So we think with the overwhelmed state of the Greek asylum system at the moment that those safeguards are not in place and we think that the program should not be going ahead until they are. And then at the Turkish end, it's also about ensuring that people who do have a need of international protection can actually gain it. Turkey's made great progress in recent years in terms of putting in place systems in line with international obligations, but those efforts need to continue to ensure that all people in Turkey who need international protection can have access, for example, to a fair and efficient determination of their claims within a reasonable time, and that those who are recognised as being in need of international protection can actually enjoy asylum, regardless of their nationality, in accordance with accepted standards. It's been said that many people do not even know what their rights are. Who is filling this gap? People are confused. There is some information given out to people, but the whole system is overwhelmed, and people are very, very confused anyway. It's not a simple system to understand. The fact that people are still coming, they're arriving in Greece, they're still trying to get to Europe, and they clearly don't understand yet what the system is and what's in store for them. That was Ariane Rumri, spokesperson at the United Nations Refugee Agency, speaking to UN Radio's Jocelyn Sambira. Our headlines up next with Jalani Tulo.
Tankelulu making headlines. Cameroon's opposition continues with protests against efforts by the ruling party to organize early elections. South Africa's opposition, the Democratic Alliance, wants National Assembly Speaker Bala Gambete to recuse herself from presiding over the debate over a motion to remove President Jacob Zuma from office. And finally, the first soldiers to face justice in a huge sex abuse scandal that has rocked the UN and France went on trial in the DRC on Monday. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. If you have friends and family in the United States of America who enjoy staying in touch with news from home, tell them they can call 605-475-1711 and listen to Channel Africa from any mobile phone. The best part is there is no extra cost for the call when it originates from the U.S. So tell your friends and family in the U.S. to listen to Channel Africa the voice of the African Renaissance. Young refugees from Syria who have been resettled in Europe are being given opportunities to continue their studies in school. Five years of civil war has driven almost five million people abroad from their homes in Syria. The United Nations Refugee Agency is working with NGOs and nations like Portugal to provide scholarships and accommodation for Syrian students. UN Radio's Janie Kangelosi has a story. Allah from Syria takes a class in architecture in her new home in Lisbon, the capital of Portugal. She moved there when the conflict in her home country became too dangerous. There were no chance to complete my study in a place where people is dying and I'm trying to live my life normal. So I take, I decide just I have to look for a chance to complete my study in a way that I can be appropriate architect who think in a good way. Portugal is one of 10 countries working with the global platform for Syrian students to provide funding for displaced young people to continue their studies. Helena Barocco is the secretary of the organization. She praises Portugal's participation in the program. It's a good example how a small country like Portugal, undergoing very difficult economic situation, was able nevertheless to make a pilot experience and to show that Europe can do much more than it is doing, creating a win-win situation. The UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, has called on other states to follow the lead of nations like Portugal. They estimate that at least 10% of the 4.8 million refugees in countries neighboring Syria will need resettling or other humanitarian help to safely move elsewhere before the end of 2018. UNHCR is also looking at measures to complement the existing resettlement or humanitarian admissions such as humanitarian visas, private sponsorship, family reunification, scholarships, medical evacuation, and labor mobility programs including through the involvement of the private sector. Allah's teacher discusses one of the class projects. These initiatives would help refugees to continue building their lives, like Allah, who one day wants to return home. In the future of Syria, I, of course I have to believe in the future of Syria, so I have to be there in the future on the land. 
uh, rebuilding from the zero. As an architect, I have to be everywhere because Syria is my first country. It's my dream. But also, I cannot forget what Portugal did for me. So Portugal is also my second country. A summit on addressing the impact of the movement of large numbers of refugees and migrants globally is due to be held at the UN in September. Janie Cangelosi, United Nations. Desmond Tutu is a human rights defender and Nobel Prize winner from South Africa. He became world famous in the 1980s as an opponent of apartheid. During that time, Desmond Tutu was active as a bishop for the Anglican Church in South Africa. He was awarded the Nobel Prize of Peace in 1984 for his leading role in the movement to resolve the problems of apartheid. Now join Channel Africa from Monday to Friday at 900 hours Central African time when we bring you the radio series Desmond Tutu, The Authorized Portrait. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Let's go back in time to today in 1953. Jomo Kenyatta, the supposed Mau Mau leader, was convicted and sentenced to seven years in Kenya. Kenyatta and five others were detained at Lodwa, a particularly remote desert army post. That was today in history in the year 1953. This is Channel Africa. South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Landmines and other explosive devices that were buried in the ground during conflict continue to kill and maim innocent people, mostly children. As part of a commemoration of the International Day for Mine Awareness and Assistance in Mine Action yesterday, the United Nations Action Service mounted an exhibition at UN headquarters that looks at this year's theme. Mine Action is humanitarian action. Lee Woodyear communications officer at UNMAS call, talks about some of the images, starting with one taken in Cyprus. We went to Cyprus in October last year. and It was the first mission of the United Nations Global Advocate uh, for the Elimination of Mines and Explosive Hazards, Mr. Daniel Craig, the British actor. It was just before the James Bond film Spectre came out, and so it was a time where there was a lot of interest in him, specifically, and it was nice that he had that time to do a mission for us. And I guess it must be important to have somebody like James Bond on your team. A hundred percent. It just brings a lot of attention to the issue. It's something that he cares about a great deal, which is very nice um, for us because he can talk about it. And a lot of different people will listen to him as opposed to a United Nations bureaucrat, for example. We're um, looking at one of the photos from Cyprus. Tell us about it. It looks like there's a miner and some very old looking uh, mines there. Yeah, this trip that we did was to give the Global Advocate a chance to actually go to an active minefield. And what we're looking at in this picture, and just to say, anybody can go to the United Nations Unmasked website, it's unmasked.org, and actually see the entire photo exhibition. 
Um, but what we're looking at right here is a Cambodian D miner wiring up three anti-tank mines. Those three anti-tank mines were found very close to this area. They're some 40 years old. They were put in the ground in the buffer zone between the Greek and the Turkish sides. And they're now being demined. This demining is going on now because confidence is being built between the two sides as the peace process moves forward. So for us to be able to react rapidly and go in when there's a call for it and get rid of some landmines, every landmine out of the ground brings the communities literally closer together. And, um, of course, the mines, they also hamper everyday life. There's another photo of a tractor. It looks like it's stalled in a field. Yeah, that's very specific. Okay, when you have landmines or even the perception that there are landmines, because landmines, again, they're buried in the ground. They're buried in the ground by soldiers, um, usually as a defensive position to, hold the, to make sure that they're not going to be attacked at a certain point. They're forgotten. They sit there, but they don't turn off. They can be there like these ones I just pointed out for 40 years or more. And anybody who comes along and steps on them, and these are anti-tank mines, so normally it would take 100 and some kilos to put them off. But after 40 years, you don't know what would set them off. Maybe it would be a child jumping rope that could set them off. In this case where you have the tractor, that's exactly what happened. This was a, a farmer who had gone into the zone of confidence or into the, the buffer zone in Cyprus. And just that, they had actually run into a mine. They're very lucky. The whole front left end of that tractor is missing, but the farmer inside of the tractor was uh, taken out and is safe and sound. Um, however, the tractor is not going to be moved for probably a long time because now the miners have to come in and get rid of the mines all around it so that it can actually safely be moved. Uh, but that's an idea. The point is, is that we did this uh, exhibition before last year and we have it this year in Geneva called the Digital Minefields. And a digital minefield is something that gives you, through an application, an iOS or an Android application, it gives you the sensation of walking through a minefield, just orally. You listen to it, right? It's on your phone. It's on your phone, and you put in earbuds. It's called Sweeper app. And if you walk through and you listen to this thing and you just get that fear of like, oh my God, every step is dangerous. So let's just stay in New York City, for example, there's one landmine, just one. It's been buried somewhere in this city. How many children would go to school tomorrow? How many people would be going to work? Who would go to a park? Just think for a moment. Just one. Even the perception that there's one. That's the point of landmines. Is that if you have them around there, you live in insecurity. If you're a parent, you're always worried about where your children are. If you're a farmer, you're always worried about which parts of the land you can use. Often places that are mined during conflict are places that people need the most. Wells passages across rivers or across fjords or places that you need to get to, um, or even places that have shade. So, example, if it's a very hot country, if there's a little shade under a tree, it could be mined. Let's move from Cyprus to Afghanistan, because one of the things that the UN Mine Action Service does is, of course, help victims. Tell us um, about that particular pillar of your work. Victim assistance is a very, very important part of what we do. Survivors of a landmine uh, accident, there are way too many of them. They continue, they're much less than there used to be, but the big goal there is how do they get back into their communities? Often, it's children. So that's very hard for the families. It takes a lot of money. You have to get prosthetic limbs. You have to go through a lot of rehabilitation. And then after that, you have to be reintroduced in order to be able to go to school or if, it's, if you're the, the breadwinner of a family, in order to find some type of job where you can work, whether you're missing an arm or you're blinded or you're missing a leg. Um, and so that's the work. That's what it's aimed at. And it's aimed at getting governments to step up and do what they can for that. And where they can't, we try to fill in to try to set up programs and try to find assistance that can be used on a temporary basis for whatever, one to five years. That was Lee Woodyer, Communications Officer at the United Nations Mine Action Service, UNMAS, speaking to UN Radio's Diane Penn. 
Former New Zealand Prime Minister and current head of the UN Development Programme, Helen Clark, has announced her candidacy to be the next Secretary-General of the United Nations. She becomes the eighth candidate in the race to replace Ban Ki-moon, who completes his second term on December the 31st. Current New Zealand Prime Minister John Key earlier announced in Wellington that his government had formally nominated his predecessor for the UN's top job. Sean Bryce-Peace has more. Helen Clark says she's got the skills and experience and is fully equipped to meet the challenges of one of the toughest jobs in the world. As one of the longest serving Prime Ministers of New Zealand and now having been leader of UNDP and chair of the UN Development Group these past seven years, I believe I am the right person for the job. Of the eight candidates already nominated, four including Helen Clark are women. The others include Vesna Pusik, a former foreign minister of Croatia, Bulgaria's Irina Bokova, who currently heads UNESCO, and Natalia German, a former deputy prime minister of Moldova. Clark was asked about the significance of a woman leading the UN, given that all UN secretaries general to date have been men. I am seeking the position because I believe I'm the best person for the job. Obviously, I'm a woman. But I've never sought election on the basis of being a woman. I've always sought election, and I've sought election many times in my life, uh, as the best person for the job. Uh, In the normal course of events, I, like advocates of gender equality and women's empowerment around the world, would like to see women have a fair chance, an equal chance, at every position of responsibility. That applies to the United Nations, as it applies to, to governments, as it applies to leadership positions in general. Efforts are being made in this election process for greater transparency with countries openly nominating candidates for the first time. The General Assembly is expected to hold open hearings or interviews with candidates while the Security Council will determine a final candidate for the General Assembly to vote on. And while the unofficial geographic rotation suggests the next Secretary General should be Eastern European, Some diplomats have insisted they will select the best candidate for the job, a view Clark endorses. When nominations were called for from member states, they were called for from all member states. Already uh, one uh, senior representative from outside uh, Eastern Europe has nominated. I anticipate there will be other nominations. I judge it to be an open contest, and uh, my hope is that member states will look at what are the challenges that uh, the Secretary-General is going to have to lead the organisation forward on and who has the best skills for that job. The Security Council is expected to begin the selection process by the end of July. The four male candidates are Xian Kerim of the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, Igor Luksic of Montenegro, Danilo Turk of Slovenia and Antonio Guterres of Portugal. I'm Sherwin Bricebees in New York. It's 8.46 and we say good morning to Tabi Solohogu with our economics update. Good morning, Balungile. Two of the world's largest wealth managers, Credit Suisse and HSBC, have dismissed suggestions that they are actively using offshore structures to help clients cheat on their taxes. Their comments come a day after a leak of four decades of documents from a Panamanian 
law firm Mosek Fonseca. The so-called Panama Papers have exposed a financial arrangement of 18 African politicians and public figures. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma's nephew, Kulubusa Zuma, is one of them. Meanwhile, South Africa's National Union of Mine Workers says it is working on an official response to news that a convicted Fidencia accountant paid money to the Panama-based law firm to create two offshore investment companies. It has emerged that Graham Maddock paid huge sums of money to the firm. Many of the 60,000 Fidencia beneficiaries were widows and orphans of minors. Noom's spokesperson, Lipuani Mamburu. We will be happy if that money can be recovered and paid back uh, to the mine workers and their dependents. As you know that they now live in abject poverty as their money was stolen by these people. So as the NEM, we welcome a situation where this money is recovered and paid to them. Lesotho's Deputy Prime Minister Mutejwa Metzing is leading a delegation of government officials and business executives to the United Kingdoms to solicit for investment into Lesotho. According to Trade and Industry Minister Joshua Satipa, the tour is dubbed Lesotho Investment Forum 2016. The ministry is organizing the trip in collaboration with the Lesotho National Development Corporation as the country's investment promoting agency. The African Development Bank plans to triple its financial support to Mozambique to 1.7 billion US dollars. The bank's president says they are planning to increase the level of financial support to Mozambique. The current portfolio of the AFDB in Mozambique consists of 19 projects totaling more than 600 million dollars. Board Chairperson of Botswana Institute of Technology Research and Innovation, Untlukhetswe Totolo, says Botswana's spending of gross domestic product on research and technology is low. He was speaking during the signing of a shareholder compact agreement between the Minister of Infrastructure, Science and Technology, Nonofo Mulifi. The shareholder compacts are designed to enhance the shareholder oversight and government of public entities through an effective relationship between the boards and government as a shareholder. The U.S. dollar currently trades at 14.72. Now that's in South Africa, 10.71 in Botswana, 10.90 in Zambia, 7.0 British pound, 8.7 euro, gold $1,218, platinum $943 an ounce, brand crude oil. Is at three six dollars five zero cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update. Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports update up next with Msubudi Makura. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans. And starting off with rugby news, SA Rugby is likely to scrap the traditional Springbok selection panel when the new national coach is announced. According to reports, South Africa's super rugby coaches will help the new Bok coach pick a team. Former Stormers coach Alistair Kutsia is in all likelihood likely will be named Springbok coach with his appointment set to be made official on the 12th of April. 
Now to quicker news, Carlos Bothwaite's four, um, four consecutive sixes, which um, rather that carried West Indies victory over England in the World T20 final, capped by capped what former players and journalists described as one of the most um, greatest sporting matches on Monday. With the West Indies requiring 19 runs for victory over the lost over, the um, Barbadian needed just four of Ben Stokes' final six deliveries to seal a four-wicket victory at Kolkata. Eden's Gardens on Sunday. While Bathway's incredible display of power hitting allowed the Caribbean side to become the first side to win a World T20 title twice, there was plenty of sympathy for England bowler Ben Stokes. Former Sri Lankan captain Mahala J. Warden, one of the greatest batsmen of recent times, also had sympathy for Stokes, saying that he was punished by Bathwaite because his deliveries were not quite accurate enough. On to athletics news, the deadline set by the World Anti-Doping Agency for Kenya to prove compliance with war on the use of banned substances in sport is the 5th of April. Kenya is yet to adapt the relevant legislation that will shield them from what would be dire consequences, tragic of all, a possible ban in international athletics. The Anti-Doping Agency of Kenya bill had gone through the first reading on the 29th of March. Kenya's sports cabinet secretary, Hassan Waru, has expressed high optimism that Kenya would not squander their second chance. Be very optimistic. We've done the bulk of the work. And this is the work which needed to and froing. You know, we really had to be in touch with WADA in Canada to make sure that we got it right. Now we're engaging with our guys. We're working on the structure. We're getting the staffing. I think uh, two months will be good. We'll be home and dry. On to football news, South African Premiership side Mamaloli Sundowns have appealed to the Premier Soccer League to postpone their league match against Bologna City set for next week Wednesday. The Brazilians will travel to the Democratic Republic of Congo to face AC Vita Club in the Camp Champions League second round first leg clash on Saturday and return on Monday evening. They will then have to travel to Limpopo to face Bologna City and come back home to face Jomo Cosmos three days later. Coach Bito Musimani says the program is unfavourable for his team. In Kinshasa, we need to get a, a good result uh, and play smart and clever. And you're going to Pulukwane, it's not easy. He eliminated the Quena, so it's a big one. Eh? And Cosmos is a big one. But those two games are, are, are a thorn in the flesh. I'm going to tell you about the program again. That as much as the program doesn't help us, we will speak about the progress, but the program doesn't help us. I mean, we're coming from, from, from Kinshasa. On a Monday evening, you're playing, you're going to Pulukwane on a Wednesday. I mean, it's very difficult, eh? And Pulukwani match is a big match for us. We can't lose that match. And after that, we have a Cosmos again on Saturday. And then, and then on Wednesday, you have, you have the return leg for, 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 for the Champions League. I mean, those two games. Why those two games? Okay, put one. You know, if the league can help us, if the league can help us, remove one match. And finally, netball news. Although netball is not yet an Olympics-recognized sport, Netball South Africa is undoubtedly leading the African continent in striving to professionalize the vastly growing sport um, sporting code in the country and beyond. This comes after Netball South Africa on Monday launched the third edition of the Brutal Fruit Netball Premier League, scheduled to get underway this Friday at the Hartfelt Arena in the country's capital, Pretoria. Netball South Africa President Mimim Tatwa says with the slight change in the league structure as well. They are anticipating a fruitful tournament once again. 
We are very excited. We are hoping that it's going to be bigger this year. Everything promises that our hopes will be fulfilled. I think from the way it was launched, you can see that it's different from last year. This year, it even gave the players the platform to also talk about it. That's what we want to encourage. We want to get to know how the players think about what we are trying to do for them. The difference uh, is that we are playing it uh, in three cities, being uh, Twane, Johannesburg and uh, Teguini Metro in Durban. And also the other difference is that we no longer have two divisions, but we've got one division. So that those are the two main differences. The Zaya Sports News at the South. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. Cameroon's opposition rejects ruling party's attempt to organize early elections. UN confirms fresh allegations of rape against its peacekeepers in the DRC and South African Parliament to debate President Zuma's impeachment motion. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuto Ramagadza and Khomuto Mopulane, technical producer... Ace and the rest of the team, thank you for listening. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.ca.za or tweet us at Rise Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Nomalungelo Lala with a song titled Imialo.